Welcome to What the F is Going On in Latin America and the Caribbean, a popular resistance broadcast of hot news out of the region. In partnership with Black Alliance for Peace, Haiti America's team, Code Pink, Common Frontiers, Council on Hemispheric Affairs, Friends of Latin America, Interreligious Task Force on Central America, Massachusetts Peace Action, and Task Force on the Americas, we broadcast Thursdays at 4.30 p.m. Pacific, 7.30 p.m. Eastern, right here on YouTube Live, including channels for The Convo Couch, Popular Resistance, and Code Pink. Post-broadcast recordings can be found at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Telegram, radindymedia.com, and now under podcasts at popularresistance.org. Today's episode, The Country is Not for Sale, Economic Development and Employment Zones, known as ZEDES, versus National Sovereignty. I'm really pleased for all of you to meet two very, very knowledgeable uh, guests uh, participating in today's episode, extremely knowledgeable, super activists, and I think you'll um, really appreciate what we're going to share with you today. Um, I have um, Beth G um, Giglia joining us. She's an anthropology PhD and Melinda St. Louis, who is director of Public Citizens Global Trade Watch. And uh, before I have a starter conversation, I want to give all of you just a brief background as what um, what has been the impetus of today's conversation. You're going to find it fascinating and possibly horrifying um, at the same time. So um, let me just share with you something that has recently happened on the Hill in Washington, D.C. On May 3rd, uh, Democratic U.S. lawmakers urged U.S. Trade Representative and State Department officials to eliminate investor state dispute settlement provisions from current and future trade deals and to intervene on behalf of Honduras against a U.S. company's nearly $11 billion claim against the country. In a letter to Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and Trade Representative Katrina Tai, 33 lawmakers said that investor state dispute settlement systems, known as ISDS, excuse me, in trade deals constitute, quote, a problematic corporate handout, unquote, that violates country's sovereignty and democratic rights. Today, we will specifically discuss investor state dispute settlement systems within uh within the specific focus of Honduras, but I think it's also important for all of us to keep in mind that um, this language is used in trade agreements, U.S. trade agreements with many other global South nations, including, I believe, Argentina and Colombia here in Latin America and the Caribbean. So with that, I would like um, all of you to meet uh, Beth and, and Melinda. And maybe, um, ladies, we should start with this letter and uh, what the impetus of the letter was and um, what the three, 33 members of Congress are hoping to achieve. And then let's um, give the audience some background as to you know, what led to the need for this letter. So who wants to start? <laughs> oh, I, well, I, I can jump in. So it's, okay. it's great to be with you all. Um, uh, thanks for the opportunity, Terry, to, um, to uh, raise awareness about this really important letter and important issue. Um, so Senator Elizabeth Warren 
and uh, Representative Lloyd Doggett, uh, who are senior members of, of the US Congress, have been concerned for a number of years about how uh, trade agreements have been used by corporations to challenge, as you mentioned, democratic policymaking and public interest policies, seeking billions sometimes of dollars of taxpayer money from poor countries like Honduras and others uh, when they believe that the, a law or a government action is a violation of very extreme rights that were granted under these trade agreements. And so I, when the, the case that we're going to talk about today um, in Honduras uh, was came to light, uh, Senator Warren and Representative Doggett were appalled, and it was just kind of the latest example that of many of cases where corporations are using these extreme rights that have been included in the trade agreements that were snuck in without, without us under, understanding what they were to bully governments um, and or to basically ransack their treasuries. Um, and um, and so that was the impetus of this letter. They wanted to raise awareness about the case that we'll talk about today. And, but importantly, that to use it as another example of why it's so critically important for the US government to align our trade policy with our climate change goals, with our goals uh, to promote anti-corruption in other countries with our goals to promote development and that right now there is this um you know across purposes of our trade um trade agreements with what those other goals are and um we can talk about how this is actually part of a long series of of advocacy from congress to subsequent administrations to change the the um the perspective of the US government and to not just be pushing US corporate interests, but to actually think about how our, our policies abroad affect human rights, democracy, rule of law, and so forth. It just it seems to me that these trade agreements have basically created uh, a corporate structure that supersedes democratically elected governments, the people's will, it's superseding national sovereignty and and most and, and natural resource sovereignty. And that is right. So I mean the thing that's I think hard for you know for folks to grasp is this crazy system that was created under these trade agreements that elevates a private corporation to the level of a nation state to be able to that government like that does not that didn't exist previously governments are sovereign nations as you mentioned and and but under this system the corporations are able to have a private right of action they don't have to convince this u.s company does not have to convince the u.s government to engage in this they can sue honduras directly and they can seek as you mentioned 11 billion dollars which is two thirds of Honduras's national budget for 2022. So obviously this is uh, just an outrageous sum, an absolutely impossible sum. And therefore they can use that as leverage 
to bully the government to hopefully do what they want. And that is that's how companies have been using um, using the system to uh, force countries to settle with them often to change their laws or to allow them to continue um, practices that are harmful or again to be compensated at the by the taxpayers of those countries so it's a huge affront to sovereignty and that's why actually it has become very unpopular even in the united states among those who are paying attention and it's not just democrats but republicans also because this is something the United States actually is also vulnerable, vulnerable to these types of cases. And in fact, we're facing one right now um, with, after President Biden canceled the Keystone XL pipeline. We now face a $15 billion case from the Canadian company that was going to build that pipeline. And I think as the United States started to see, wait, oh, this isn't just our corporations uh, you know, going after poorer countries, but actually we could potentially be vulnerable. Now it's no longer popular. But so now that's why we need to translate that ire, you know, to say, wait, the U.S. government, it should not be taken before an international tribunal for a corporation. Well, our corporation should not be taking other countries toward international tribunals like what we're seeing with Honduras. So do these, am I correct in understanding that the, the, the companies can sue a sovereign nation, a democratically elected government for lost profit and and loss of investment, like the infrastructure investments they make. They're suing for that. Is that yeah? So the idea behind it is that uh, a company, when you invest in a foreign country, there is a chance that potentially that country could nationalize your your assets. And if they do that, if they expropriate your investment, you have the right to compensation. Now that in other, you can make an argument that that could make sense. But what's happened is that in the context of these agreements, they defined what these violations are very broadly. So it's not just if I seize your factory, I have to compensate you. It's if I pass a law that reduces the value of your investment. Um, so that can be environmental protections if you are a fossil fuel company that wants to you know, abuse the environment or a mining company, or it could be a public health protection if you, you know, if, if your investment was actually going to be damaging health. And so it's been interpreted in this very broad way uh, that that you get compensated, not just for your investment, but that's what you what you mentioned, which is the, the crazy part, is that you can sue for what your expected future profits may have been wow. if that law had not taken been. And you know, so then they inflate out of thin air. We know this company, and we'll talk, you know, Beth can talk about what's happened with the company, but they haven't invested even a tiny fraction of what they're suing for. But they claim that if they were able to function as they wanted, at some point in the future, they would make $11 billion. <laughs> and so that's why they are, oh, you know, so wow. it's, and, you know, and that's why this has fallen out of favor too, because it's, it's not even, you know, it's not, we're not even talking about like a leftist idea. When you think about if you're an investor and you're going to invest someplace, you may make a lot of money, especially if it's a risky investment, or you might lose some money. Hmm. You don't have a right to be compensated because you lost money. And that is kind of the, the, the idea now behind um, these investor state suits is that they are completely protected 
uh, from any change in the re in the regulatory environment where they have invested. And that's just simply not the way our national courts work. That's not, you know, that's not a standard that in our courts that would be accepted, but because it's this pro-corporate international tribunal that is set up outside of our courts, they've created these whole new rules that are very pro-corporate in terms of their rights. So Beth, in terms of Honduras specifically, this transnational corporate system, these Zetas, which, which you know so much about, these were uh, accepted in Honduras during the Juan Orlando Hernandez administration. And over, I don't say I said overrule, or were negated or augmented under the current president, Giammara Castro, who was democratically elected in November of 2021 by a supermajority of the citizens and put an end to 12 years of narco dictatorship in Honduras. So you've got one government that's totally pro-US, pro, and I think when the at right after the coup was the Lobo government that said Honduras is open for business. And so this is a byproduct of that philosophy, correct? And I mean it's a byproduct on steroids. Uh yes, you're absolutely correct. So this the Zede law or the Zede project very much starts with the the military coup in 2009. Um so it's after that coup that you you know the Porfirio Lobo administration launches this campaign that says Honduras is open for business. Honduras sort of goes through a neoliberal shock treatment of sorts, um passes a lot of neoliberal reforms to open up uh, the the country to you know foreign resource extraction um, and foreign direct investment and this kind of thing, and it's at that point when you also see uh, what is kind of a global network of you know largely libertarian organizations, think tanks, investor capitalists, and so forth really start to see Honduras as a place. Um, where they can finally experiment with something that they've been dreaming about for a while, which is creating these kinds of micro nations, these kinds of um, autonomous or, you know, quite sovereign territories where they can experiment with very extreme sort of free market uh, systems with systems of private governance and so forth. So it's in 2011, actually, when uh, the post-coup regimes in Honduras reform the Honduran constitution. Um, they reform three main articles of the constitution to allow for, at the time, these zones were called um, special development regions or REDs. It wasn't until later that the Zede name um, comes into play. Um, but they reform the constitution to basically say, okay, so Honduras has previously had uh, you know, departments and municipal governments. These are the division, these are the governance divisions of the country. And now we're going to create a separate division, which is called, you know, the special development region or now the Zede. Um, and these are uh, jurisdictions that are going to be outside of the jurisdiction of municipal governments. So they take land from municipal, from de democratically elected local governments and place it in this new jurisdiction, which is now going to be governed by, you know, groups of um, private investors, essentially. Um, and those constitutional reforms also said that these jurisdictions could have their own, um, their independent judicial systems, you know, sort of independent of the national um, Honduran judicial system. So this was, you know, widely seen in Honduras as neocolonialism as a violation of national sovereignty. Um, and it's actually in 2012 that the Supreme Court 
of Honduras uh, rules that uh, these jurisdictions are unconstitutional. Um, so there's that initial ruling of unconstitutionality and what happens at that point. So, so the, the law was actually passed under the Porfirio Lobo administration, um, the, the um, special development regions law. Um, and then what happens after this constitutional, um, this ruling of inconstitutionality um, is the, the Congress, which is at the time under the leadership of Juan Orlando Hernandez, who's president of Congress at the time, essentially grants itself the power to remove these uh, justices um, from the Supreme Court. And it's done under the general auspices of the Supreme Court supposedly creating obstacles for the administration, um, you know, in other realms as well. Um, uh, but, and so they they use that power then to remove these justices essentially overnight and uh, replace them with, um, um, you know, sort of um, with their own people on the Supreme Court. So then Congress goes back and passes what is now um, the 2013 ZA law. So that context is really, I think, important um, to, to have, um, that this is not just a regular kind of investment in Honduras, um, but that it's really come about through these sort of illegal processes. And what the ZA law essentially does is it grants investors uh, the ability to um, purchase land in Honduras, and then create their own governance systems on that land. So to have their own independent courts, their own monetary policies. Um, Prospera, for example, which was the first sede in Honduras has made Bitcoin legal tender. They're very much sort of advancing the, you know, the expansion of crypto um, and blockchain economies and ecosystems um, to create, have their own police and security forces, to have their own regulatory regimes, which is, um, uh, something that's also interesting to talk about in the in the context of Prospera, um, and and to essentially create their own models of governance, and so that can, you know, what one of the things that makes this so different from a regular special economic zone is you don't have sort of one set of policies that says these are the fiscal incentives, um, or these are the regulatory incentives that we're giving to corporations in order to attract investment. It says that every group of investors can create their own system, um, and so with, you could potentially have like. 20 different investors and 20 different independent sovereign systems within. Well, I guess they're not within Honduras at that point. They're like cutouts because they don't have to answer to the elected government, to the constitutional institutions of Honduras. They have their own. So they're all like basically like, like city states or like cutouts, right? They've just like taken, extracted part of. Oh my God, yeah. I mean, it's it's almost impossible to believe listening to, you know, when I hear it, you read about it, but like hearing the conversation, it's almost, it's almost impossible to believe. I find it fascinating that, I mean, I'm listening to this thinking, you know, it, it actually took a coup to get this to happen too, which has, which has been the model um, throughout the Americas for like 500 years, that it really took a coup in 2009 to make this happen or to get a government receptive to the idea, I guess, is maybe a more diplomatic way to say it. So what happens? So Prospera was the first, the first Zedi. And so, and it is, and it is that uh, corporation that is suing. That's correct. Yeah. So, so the, the, 
the charter for the Prospera jurisdiction, which is on the island of Roatan um, in Honduras, was actually signed. It was signed behind closed doors at the embassy in Washington, D.C. with with a body that's called the Committee for the Adoption of Best Practices. And we can go more into that as well. This is basically what the Zede law does is it it says that it's not even the Honduran Congress that really has the power to, you know, declare these private jurisdictions or to approve them. There's this separate group of people. Uh, it's an international committee. It was, you know, first it was comprised of mostly a majority of U.S. citizens, a lot of sort of familiar faces from the Reagan administration that worked on, you know, uh, Reagan's policy of supporting counterinsurgency efforts in Central America, um, you know, are op- were operating originally on this committee. Um, and this committee uh, is the group that approves uh, these private jurisdictions with groups of investors. So Prospera, the Pros- Prospera Charter was signed in 2018, but it wasn't until 2020 that Honduran's even knew that this jurisdiction existed. So, you know, the investors on the island of Roatan talked to local communities about this being just a a regular tourism development. And that's how it was perceived. And it wasn't until 2020 that Hondurans realized what was actually happening with this project. And this was much bigger than a tourism investment, that this was really an issue of of national sovereignty. And like, as you were saying earlier, that in terms of the different kinds of systems that can be enacted through this policy, Honduras um, had Honduras approved three Zedes before there was a transition in government. So it's also, you know, good to keep in mind that these were sort of kind of pushed through at the end of Juan Orlando Hernandez's last administration, knowing full well that, you know, a, a, tragi- a transition to democracy um, was likely to take place and that this would likely put an end to the Zede project. So there are three Zedes in Honduras. There's the Orquidia Zede, there's the Francisco, there's the Morazan Zede, um, and there's the Prospera Zede, and each one has its own system, and each one has created its own governance system. Um, so, so it, and there's a debate, just to, to go back to what you were saying, there's there's a debate in Honduras, uh, you know, about what what exactly is sovereignty. So the, the, um, the Hondurans and the interna- international investors that support the Zedes will claim, this is not a violation of national sovereignty. You know, the, the Honduran military still has jurisdiction um, on this land. And, you know, the articles of the constitution that, you know, apply to the issuing of passports and these kinds of things still apply in these territories. But what you're really doing is you're taking land and you're removing it from democratic, um, from democratic control. So you're really, you're putting it under another governance system where people don't have equal rights to vote um and so it's it's really a question about democracy in the end do people live inside these economic zones or or simply work what's what is physically inside and then i guess the other question is can the honduran military actually go in like to me it would seem like you're crossing a border at that point so to speak do they have jurisdiction inside those zones or Oh my God! I mean, it the, just doesn't. The, even the military out. does, and the Honduran police can be invited into the zones. Can be invited, okay, by the Zede administrations. Okay, yeah. And and do people live in there? Do do people go in and work and then leave at the end of the day, or do they go or do they live in there? Or so all of these zones are very initial stages of development, uh, and this is you know also. Um, you know, related to the ISDS case, Prospera claims that they've invested 
um, you know, around a hundred million uh, in the zone, and they're claiming that Honduras might be liable for up to ten point seven billion. So just to give a sense of, so these zones are, are in very initial stages of development. Um, the case with Prospera is that the Prospera company, which is um, based in Washington D.C., um, purchased fifty eight an initial fifty eight acres of land. Um, in the community of Crawfish Rock on the island of Roatan. Um, and this was, you know, mostly uninhabited land, but of course it is part of Crawfish Rock. It is governed by the Patronato, which is the local governing council of Crawfish Rock, um, was previously governed by the municipality, um, et cetera. And they're really, Prospera is really trying to attract sort of global digital nomads, people, you know, from other countries who are remote workers, um, and might want to, you know, relocate and work remotely from a beautiful um, island in kind of, you know, this Caribbean paradise. And that's really sort of the demographic that they're trying to to recruit. They're also recruiting, um, you know, people who are invested in the sort of de the world of decentralized finance, mm. um, so people who are interested in in crypto investments um, and. And, and then other sort of entrepreneurs and investors. So they're really recruiting people from outside Honduras. Um, and they are also, you know, recruiting Hondurans for some jobs within the zone. Um, but really up to this point, it's been, um, you know, they've been constructing sort of like their initial buildings, uh, their initial real estate projects and that kind of thing. So there are very few people living um, living in these zones as of yet. When you say uh, remote workers or nomad workers, I it, it comes to mind, and I I don't know what the name is, but I've seen like ads, social media ads. You know, I'm, and Melinda, you're shaking your head. Is this the same? I I mean, really promoting nomadic work and take a year off and go do this, and that's. I don't know where I've seen those ads, but I've seen them quite frequently. I think like probably on Twitter and Facebook, I probably shouldn't use those two names, but social media, I don't know that I've seen them in print ad, but is that the sort of thing that Prospera is attracting? Are those people that sort of? Well, I, I think it, I think it remains to be seen. I mean, I've, there's definitely been a broader kind of digital nomad movement and I wouldn't paint all of it as, you know, moving into, you know, this kind of Zezay, um framework. I think they are trying, my sense is that they are trying to track that, but then the, the other kind of mind-blowing thing is that they, um, you can become an e-resident of Prospera. You don't have to live there. Uh, you've, if you pay them fees, you can be an e-resident and then, but you can avail yourself of their deregulatory framework if you want to start a business. So you can incorporate your business in Prospera Zede, even if you don't live there. Um, and and then you and they you know advertise uh, the fact that it is, you know, that there are way fewer steps to, you know, to register a business, that there you can uh, pro pro provide your own, um, you can choose a regulatory code from any OECD country, or you can propose your own uh, to the council. Um, your, you know, and they, they say that, you know, the labor, uh, the, the minimum wage is, or, or, or labor, um, 
labor laws, you know, are, are it's, it's more, you know, more flexible labor environment than in Honduras or in the United States. So it's, um, so I think it's both potentially the, the tourist element, but then it also is this idea of kind of a deregulatory business environment that is, is, seems to be a lot of what they're selling. So as an e-resident, you could incorporate your business within the Prospera Zede and run your business anywhere in the world? Is that, or do you have to like run it inside that Zede or inside what we geographically, how we geographically define Honduras? Or is this just an instrument to set up, uh, you know, wow. You can run your business anywhere once you're incorporated there, or we don't know that yet. We're waiting to see if that's I, what I happens. Think, I think there's a lot that's yet to be seen in exactly how this is yeah. going to work, but I think that it's maybe somewhat similar to how, you know, companies register in Delaware, for example. Yeah. So, okay. you know, that register your company where there's, you know, favorable, um, like a, fav a favorable regulatory framework. Um, to then be able to operate. And a lot of this is also geared towards, um, you know, digital assets and and the kind of business that is done virtually uh, in general. So, um, so yeah, so as Melinda mentioned, the, the Prospera jurisdiction offers four um, different options for regulatory frameworks for investors. And one of them is to adopt, you know, the regulatory framework of another OECD country. Another is to propose your own <laughs> regulations mm -hmm. uh, to be approved by the by the Prospera government. And the other is to oper operate under what's basically a liability system where you have a certain kind of liability insurance and you are subject to being sued for, you know, causing harm to another party or to an individual, but um, largely um, free of regulations. Wow, it's a whole superstructure superseding elected governments. I mean, it's really scary. It's really so. What else should we? What else should the audience know about Zedes? Are they? Is this a? I guess my question would be: This isn't just occurring in Honduras. My understanding is there are now in uh, Colombia. Uh, people that are petitioning the new government, the Petro government, to do something about the mining concessions that are similarly managed and regulated in Colombia. Am I correct in that, or is Argentina so I too? I believe. I think there's a wide spectrum of sort of these extraterritorial jurisdictions, right? You know, we have all sorts of different kinds of uh, free trade zones, export processing zones. Um, a lot of resource extraction takes place in the context of, you know, legal loopholes um, and you know, um, and these kinds of exemptions for corporations and that kind of thing. And I, I tend to think that this these things kind of exist on a spectrum. And I think in Honduras, you see the most extreme form of this. Um, and, you know, the global investors that are involved in the project talk about it this way. This is very much a vanguard project. This is very much pushing the boundaries of corporate sovereignty um, in, in other countries, pushing the boundaries of, you know, what they claim is the nation state having a monopoly on sovereignty and, and how can we break that and how can we gain access to territory to form our own government. So I think Honduras is a very extreme example. You see similar kinds of enclaves popping up all over the world that I think are pursuing similar interests. So for example, you have Bitcoin City in El Salvador 
Um, and this is sort of very much along the same lines of, um, you know, groups of investors who are um, committed to expanding what they what they call the decentralized, uh, what they call decentralized finance, um, you know, hoping that this decentralized system, what is essentially an unregulated financial system can eventually overtake, uh, you know, take over um, the global financial system. And so you see these kinds of like crypto and Bitcoin enclaves uh, in the form of some kind of special jurisdiction or some kind of urban project popping up all over the world. And I think Honduras is where they have gotten the furthest in creating an actual legal system um, to to get the kind of sovereignty that that they're after. And I think that one thing that is particularly unique about the ZA law in Honduras is that it creates a template for really for making these jurisdictions very easy to set up. Um, so it's like I said before, it's kind of removing the power to to do that, which you know nation states all over the world create special jurisdictions. Um, but sort of taking the power to do that and giving it to these unelected, secretive, completely, you know, non-transparent um, organizations um, that are that are given the power to create these jurisdictions. And then in the case of the Zede law, once the jurisdiction is created for the, for example, Prospera, um, they're easily expandable. So Prospera can expand not by getting approval from the Honduran Congress or even the Committee for the Adoption of Best Practices, but they can expand by just uh, having a contract with the private landowner. And it can be a private landowner actually anywhere in the country. So it doesn't have to be contiguous to um, the wow. existing Prospera jurisdiction. And they did that in the, with the case of, you know, shortly after Prospera became a, a special jurisdiction, um, they incorporated the Satuye port um, on mainland Honduras, um, which, you know, does not share a border with, with Prospera. Um, but they did that just through a private, a private agreement. Um, so you really have created this sister, they have created this system where these zones can, can just expand without any democratic oversight. And this is part of sort of the, the long-term vision of this model is to create hubs, uh, you know, for example, a hub in Roatan, potentially hubs in southern Honduras and different parts of Honduras. And then as they can go about convincing other governments to enact the same kind of legislation, they can open hubs all over the world with using the same governance system, which they call an operating system, but essentially using the, you know, for example, the Prospera government. Um, and then also creating these virtual jurisdictions, as Melinda was talking about. So, you know, creating the option for e-citizenship and creating a jurisdiction that kind of exists virtually outside of the sort of material territory. Um, and then if, you know, Honduras reforms their laws and, you know, closes the, the Zedes, for example, or if another country does the same, you have a group of residents that um, are sort of automatically citizens of these hubs everywhere else and can simply take their capital and take their businesses and go elsewhere or continue operating through the virtual jurisdiction. So it really does create, I'm trying to sort of give the image of how it creates this sort of meta structure that mm -hmm. again, you know, supersedes national sovereignty and really aims to eventually operate independently of, of nation states. That's kind of the long-term vision. And I think Honduras, wow. the law that was passed in Honduras is sort of the closest um, that, you know, investors have gotten to really creating a system that um, that comes close to that. 
in our last few minutes, can let's talk about what Shiamara Castro has done in response to all of this. She was elected president, as we said earlier, by a significant majority uh, of Honduran citizens in November of 2021. Her inauguration ended 12 years of, of uh, narco dictatorship in the country. And one of the first things she did was outlaw, reverse, I'm not sure what the correct technical term is, this law and this and, and that reversal, her reversal of this is what triggered the Prospera lawsuit, correct? That's how, okay. So what exactly did she do? She was elected, this is one of the things she was elected to do. And so, so no, yeah, this Zeta issue is absolutely, it was a central point in the, the platform of the opposition coalition. Um, and it was, uh, it was in April of 2022, it was actually the Honduran Congress that voted unanimously to repeal the Zeta law. Um, and this was really seen as, you know, a victory for democracy, for the rule of law, for sort of taking the country back from 12 years of narco dictatorship, um, um, it's taking the institutions back under democratic, uh, under democratic control. I think it's also to note, you asked earlier, what what else should people know about the Zedes? It's really important, I think, to mention the resistance that there has been to Zedes um, inside Honduras. And so in 2020, for there was a period of time when Hon a lot of Hondurans thought that the Zede was basically a dead project, that it wasn't going to come to fruition. The government was, you know, constantly saying that any month now the first Zede was going to be launched. They were largely talking about the southern part of the country. They weren't talking about Roatan. Um, and it was in 2020 when this, you know, becomes front and center as a national issue again. Um, and you start to see uh, communities and people throughout Honduras really sort of um, reviving local democracy in the face of this kind of privatization project. So even though what the Zede law does is it allows investors, investors to you know, take land from municipal governments. Municipal governments don't have any say um, in whether or not this happens in their territory according to the law. Um, you know, as I mentioned before, it's really in, in areas of low population density, uh, Zedes don't require any um, approval by the Congress of Honduras. So it's really, you know, done between the Committee for the Adoption of Best Practices and the investors. And the municipal governments are extremely disempowered in this process. Um, and what um, what Hondurans did was to really sort of revive local mechanisms of uh, democracy and organized what they call cabildos abiertos, which is uh, like a, a kind of like a municipal level uh, referendum or vote. Um, and they voted their dozens of municipalities voted their municipalities to be free of Zede. So this was a way of reclaiming democracy, reclaiming sovereignty over local jurisdictions. Um, so I think it's important to note sort of the, the local resistance or the regional resistance to Zedes, as well as what happened on a national level with the repeal of the of the Zede law. And, you know, and really that should be the end of the story. And I think that's why it's, uh, you know, looking now at the, what the trade agreements the layer that the trade agreements create, you know, because this was, you know, a massive democratic action to try to reclaim uh, democracy, rule of law within Honduras. They won, 
you know, they changed the law. They elected a, a you know a government that was was ready to do that. And now the company has these extra rights that have been granted to them under this the Central America Free Trade Agreement with the United States that says they have these broad investor rights. And so they're using that to then challenge the fact that, you know, challenge the repeal of this law and saying that it shouldn't apply to them, that they had signed a legal stability agreement with the outgoing government, which, you know, of Juan Orlando Hernandez, uh, you know, which obviously is, uh, you would think would be a pretty shaky legal territory. And yet they are, um, using that to uh, you know to advance this claim uh, for 11 billion dollars and it's going this will now be happening outside of national courts in um, an arbitration the arbitration tribunal there will be three private sector lawyers who will be appointed to be the arbitrators for this um, one appointed by the company one appointed by the the government and they will choose a third or it will be assigned by the tribunal uh, which is under the auspices of the world bank and those three private sector lawyers will decide you know well th this case and in the meantime the honduran government must seek legal counsel it's extremely expensive to defend yourself you have to pay half of the arbitration costs which are extremely high uh, because these are private, they they earn private sector lawyer rates. They are not judges. They are not salaried employees. They receive an incentive to have these cases go on very long, um, and and to um, and and then to make this decision. So and it's all done behind closed doors. We have not yet seen even the claim that um, Prospera has uh, given against the the Honduran government. That is uh, currently confidential. It's potentially. They may be ordered to to make it not confidential, but there's no rules under the system that yeah. that provides an opportunity to see. There's no rules for them, period, <laughs> except their own. Yeah, yeah. So so that's why you know it's important, like what Senator Warren and Representative Doggan and the 33 members of Congress said that we need to remove these extreme investor rights so that governments, when they are reclaiming democracy, like a case like this, are not then being, uh, you know, now subject to having to deal with this outrageous investor state claim when obviously the, you know, President Castro has a lot that she has to be dealing with within the country. And now to have to divert resources toward this case is just, uh, it's an abomination. Well, it, it's almost like the lawsuit is intentional in doing that. Like it, it's got, well, preventing her from any sort of state investment and that would force privatization in a way, or at least philosophically. It's If this $11 billion that the Honduran government is being sued for is, I think you said earlier, two thirds of their of entire our, national budget of their entire 2022 national budget i mean it's almost that it's almost like there's uh, the strategy is a specific intent to bankrupt the country or 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 to scare them enough that then yeah, they, back they decide to just back off yeah. and allow visiting to continue and that was yeah. pretty clear in the notice of intent that was put forward i mean they said we 
don't want to move forward with this case. We want the Honduran government to, you know, to yeah. agree to this. So. Wow. Hey, it's really, it's really horrifying. It's like neoliberal capitalism on steroids. Just, yeah. Wow. Well, thank you, ladies. My gosh. <laughs> There's so much more to talk about here. And I would love to have you come back, um, you know, and watch how we can maybe analyze how this letter is affecting, uh, you know, decisions on the Hill, what ultimately comes. Because as you said, I mean, it could affect the United States too. And, and I agree that's the, the, the threat to the United States is really the impetus for, for changing the law. Unfortunately, that's what it takes, but if that's what it takes and the, and it, and this structure can be changed, then, you know, we should well, do it. You know, and, and really, like I said, this is actually now actually under the previous Trump administration, when they renegotiated the North America Free Trade Agreement, uh -huh. they actually removed a lot of this ISDS from it, um, and which would even under a Republican administration. And now President Biden has said that he no longer he does not support investor state dispute settlement and any future trade agreements, which is a great victory. They are not seeking this in any uh, future agreements. They and so. The ask of this letter is to align our past agreements with the current yeah. thinking and the current policy. So we are hopeful that we can really make some real strides. Governments in Europe have been withdrawing from a, a, a treaty called the Energy Charter Treaty, which also included um, investor state dispute settlement in it. And countries like Germany, France, they have been withdrawing from this because they because they said, well, if we're going to address climate change, we can't have these you know, fossil fuel corporations or others suing our governments as we pass climate policies. And so it, the tide is really turning. And, um, and so we think that there's a real opportunity right now uh, to, to push to end this kind of ridiculous system. So we as activists, what can we do? Should we be circulating this letter? Should we be advocating for more sign-ons? What we should definitely go to Honduras and see for ourselves what's happening there. I, I would advocate for, you know, a visit anywhere to really understand um, a situation and how people are organizing and responding to it. But here in the States, what what what's the best thing for us to do like now as activists? Well, so we are actually, I, th I think there will be more opportunities relatively soon. Uh, you know, I think now that this letter uh, from the uh, members of Congress have come out, uh, there are, you know, there are efforts to, to have a broad organizational sign-on letter to the administration in support of this, which we can, right. you know, share uh, in, in the future. That's for organizations, um, activists, uh, you know, I, I think, you could follow some of the organizations that are part of this uh, effort, and we can provide more uh, information. So uh, tradewatch.org is our website, and we will be uh, putting um, additional information um, on there soon. There's also um, the Center for Economic and Policy Research has been really active, the Institute for Policy Studies, um, uh, the Latin America Working Group, a number of, of organizations have been uh, raising awareness about this. And, and I think there will be opportunities to, uh, you know, to weigh in with the, with the administration uh, very soon. Great. Thank you so much. Beth, is there anything you'd like to add in closing? 
Um, no, I don't think so. I think Melinda pretty much summed it up. So for the audience, um, I'll be sure to put the links into all these organizations, TradeWatch, CEPR, IPS, LOG. I'll put links uh, in the program notes. Uh, for the audience, I'll put the link uh, oh, in the, the Honduras Solidarity notes. Network also. You should oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. And we should give a huge shout out to the Honduran Solidarity Network, um, Karen Spring specifically, because she really uh, facilitated today's conversation. And I'm just so, um, I'm so thankful that both of you were available um, to have this really, really important conversation. And um, it, it's a really necessary for those of us in the States to understand, you know, what's happening to our neighbors in the global South and, and what we can do, you know, to stop it and to help ourselves in the long run as well. So I will include all of the links to those organizations um, in the program notes. I'll also include the link to uh, the Warren letter so that people um, can see see that as well. So, okay, thank you so much, Beth and Melinda. What a really informative and helpful conversation and just so nice to work with both of you. Really enjoyed it. So, so I wanna remind the audience that you've been watching What the F is going on in Latin America and the Caribbean. We are a popular resistance broadcast. We uh, air on Thursday evening, 7.30 p.m. Eastern on three YouTube channels, uh, po Popular Resistance, Code Pink, and The Convo Couch. And uh, you can also find the audio, audio recordings at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, or wherever you get your podcasts. So. So thank you, ladies. And for the audience, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you.